Welcome back to Time Travel Rock here on 90.3 KRNU. I am your host, Jackson Reddick, here on this Saturday evening. And today we'll be talking about the American heavy metal band Motley Crue. Band was formed in Hollywood, California. And you may know Motley Crue recently if you're a Netflix subscriber or watcher. They did have a movie released about them on Netflix that the whole band kind of worked on together. It was a fun little movie. That movie being titled The Dirt, where it went through kind of the band's whole biography, went through their challenges, just kind of all the fun times that the band had. Definitely cannot go into description of some of the things that went on in that movie due to it not being PG-related. It is definitely a not a PG-rated film. I'll just put it that way. But diving into Motley Crue. Here we go. So the band was created by Nicky Sticks. He was the bassist. The drummer was Tommy Lee. And the original guitarist and lead vocalist was Greg Leon. He was soon replaced by Mick Mars on guitar. And then the lead vocalist, Vince Neil, took over for him. You know, in their history, the band has sold over 100 million albums worldwide. They've had a ton of records, you know, a ton of really good songs. And it's when you think about the history of rock and roll and you think about rock ballads, you could say, or like anthems. I mean, Motley Crue definitely has their fair share of really, really good rock and roll songs. So Motley Crue started out on January 17th, 1981, when Nikki Six left the band London after rehearsing with drummer Tommy Lee and the original guitarist Greg Leon. Lee had really previously worked with Leon in a band called Sweet 19. The trio really practiced together for a little bit, but Leon really, he realized this was not for him. Six and Lee then began a new search for new members and soon met guitarist Robin Moore and Bob Deal, better known as Mick Mars, after answering an advertisement that he placed in the recycler that read, Loud, Rude, and Aggressive Guitar Player Available. Mars then auditioned for Six, Moore, and Lee, and was subsequently hired while Moore was fired in the band's biography that they released. Lee had known Vince Neil from their high school days at Charter Oak High School in Covina, California, and the two had performed in different bands on the garage band circuit. So upon seeing him performed with the band Rock Candy at the Starwood in Hollywood, California, Mars suggested that they have Neil join the band. At first, Neil did not want to join. He refused the offer. But as the other members kind of in the Rock Candy band became involved in other outside projects, Neil grew anxious to try something else. Lee then asked him again, and Neil was hired on April 1st, 1981, and the band played its first gig at the Starwood Nightclub on April 24th. But when those four band members really came together, they didn't have a name yet for the band. Nikki Six was one of the first ones to really propose a band name, and he was thinking about naming the band Christmas, which is such a weird i mean if that was a rock and roll band name that was like so successful and made really good music that'd probably be one of the weirdest things ever and of course the other members were not receptive to that to that idea and then Mick Mars remembered he remembered an incident that occurred when he was playing with a band called White Horse when one of the other band members called the group a motley looking crew he remembered the phrase and then later copied it down, and they were drinking a German-style beer, Lowenbrau. I probably said that so wrong, I don't really know how to pronounce it. But 
they were drinking that beer and they saw the way that it was written out with the two dots above the letters and they're like you know what? let's just do that on ours so that is how motley crew got their name the band soon met their first manager Alan Kaufman, who was 38 years old at the time, and he was a brother-in-law of a friend of McMars. The band's first release was a single, Stick to Your Guns, slash Toast of the Town, which was released on its own record label, Lether Records, which had been pressing and distributing excuse me, which had a pressing and distribution deal with Greenwood Distribution in Torrance, California. In November 10th, 1981, its debut album, Too Fast for Love, was self-produced and released on Leithlier, selling over 20,000 copies. Kaufman's assistant, Eric Grief, set up a tour of Canada, while Kaufman and Grief used Motley Crue's success in Los Angeles club scene to negotiate with other sec- with several other record labels. They eventually set up and signed a contract with Elektra Records in early 1982. The debut album was then remixed by producer Roy Thomas Baker and re-released on August 20th, 1982. Two months after its Canadian Warner Music Group release using the original Lether mixes to coincide with their tour. From that first album that the band did release, Too Fast for Love, in 1981, I will play one song off of that album, one that was really one of their first you know, really hit songs, and they, you know, if you did watch the movie about them, it was one of the scenes where they were, it was kind of like their audition, per se, to Mick Mars and other band members. Uh, it was, you know, just kind of the song that they played, and it was a consistent, uh, it was a consistent guitar, I would say, like a couple chords that Mick Mars just had to play over and over again, and I just love it because it sounds so consistent and you know what you're going to get. And from that first album, here is Live Wire.
know, you listen to that song Live Wire and you can really tell it's just a band at the very beginning of their transformation with one another. You can tell they don't really have the greatest of chemistry. And it's just the it's that first album song, basically. Uh but during their cruising through Canada tour in 1982, there were several widely publicized incidents. First, the band was arrested and then released at Edmonton International Airport for wearing their spiked stage wardrobe, which was considered dangerous weapons through customs, and Neil arriving with a small carry-on filled with magazines that were not, uh, they were considered indecent material. Both were staged PR stunts. Customs eventually had the confiscated items destroyed. Second, while playing Sandals Disco in Edmonton, a spurious bomb threat against the band made the front page of the Edmonton Journal on June 9, 1982. Lee and assistant band manager Grief were interviewed by police as a result. This, too, was also a staged PR stunt perpetrated by Grief. Lastly, Lee threw a television set from an upper story window of the Sheraton Caravan Hotel. Canadian rock magazine Music Express noted that the band was banned for life from the city. Despite the tour entering prematurely in financial disaster, it was the basis for the band's first international press. In 1983, the band changed management from Kaufman to Doug Thaler and Doug McGee. McGee is best known for managing Bon Jovi and later Kiss, starting with their reunion tour in 1996. Grief subsequently sued all parties in a Los Angeles Superior Court action that dragged on for several years and coincidentally later resurfaced as a manager of six former band London. Kaufman was himself sued by several investigators who, to whom he had sold stock in the band, including Michigan-based Bill Larson. Kaufman eventually declared bankruptcy as he mortgaged his home at least three times to cover band expenses. So just a lot of messy details early on with the band. As in 1983 is really when the band would start to take off and their international fame. And a lot of problems went from 1983 to 1981. But in 1983, they released their second album, Shout at the Devil. And in that album, they have multiple great songs in that album. It was released in September 26, 1983. The album represented the band's mainstream breakthrough and would eventually be certified four times platinum. The album generated controversy for its title track and album album imagery, both of which involved Satanism. They then gained the attention of heavy metal legend Ozzy Osbourne and found themselves as the opening act for Osbourne on his 1984 tour, Bark at the Moon. The band members were well known for their backstage antics, outrageous clothing, extremely high-heeled boots, heavily applied makeup, and seemingly endless abuse of alcohol and drugs as well. But now I will play for you the title track of the album, Shout at the Devil, the song Shout at the Devil. It was really, you know, people were just not happy that the fact that the band used Satanism. And, you know, they try to say that the album cover was, you know, different, but it's really just a picture of the of the four band members with their crazy hair and their makeup and everything. And people just didn't really like that, though. It just really, it wasn't accepted or it just... It was not mainstream at the point to be doing things like that. I mean, certain bands were doing it, and people still really were not the hugest fans of it. But nonetheless, here's Motley Crue's Shout at the Devil.
the band itself featured some legal issues. More specifically, one band member, as Vince Neil, was driving home from a liquor run on December 8th, 1984, where he crashed his De Tomasa Pantera head-on where his passenger, Hanoi Rocks drummer Nicholas Razzle Dingley, was killed. Neil was charged with the DUI and vehicular manslaughter and was sentenced to 30 days in jail, where he only served 18 of those, and was subsequently sued for $2.5 million. The short-term jail visit was negotiated by his lawyers, which enabled Neil to tour and pay the civil suit. Pay the, civil suit. the band's third album, Theater of Pain, was released in June 21, 1985, and dedicated in Dingley's honor, and it started with their new glam metal phase in the band's style. Theater of Pain was commercially successful, reaching number six on the Billboard album charts and eventually being certified quadruple platinum. However, the recording of the album was fraught with tension in the wake of Neil's accident and six growing addiction, and members of the band have said that they considered a creative disappointment. They try to say that, but the band spent most of their next year on a world tour in support of Theater of Pain in February 1986 in London, England, where Nikki Six suffered a near-fatal heroin overdose, and the person who sold him the drugs dumped his unconscious body in a dumpster. The incident inspired Six to write the song Dancing on Glass for their next album. But I want to take a little bit of pain looking a little bit of time looking through Theater of Pain. A couple great songs on that album I'm gonna play. I'm gonna play Smoking in the Boys Room, and possibly one of my favorite rock and roll songs of all time, Home Sweet Home. I don't think you can find a better opening to a rock and roll song. I know this might be a little off topic, but the song, if you've ever seen the movie Hot Tub Time Machine, possibly <laughs> one of the best. I mean, that's really where I, you know, really started to love the song was just I found it out in that movie and then I started to listen to it. But it, it, when Lou subsequently f- attempts a attempts to basically kill himself, which is terrible, but he's jamming out to that song, and it is such a good song. Uh, but first I'm going to play Smoking in the Boys' Room, and then I'm going to play Home Sweet Home by Motley Crue. Woo!
The band then released their fourth studio album, Girls, 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 after 
The Theater of Pain and Girls, Girls, Girls was released in May 15, 1987, and it debuted at number two on the Billboard Top 200. Nikki Six said that in interviews that he believes the album would have debuted at number one if not for behind-the-scenes maneuvering by Whitney Houston's record label. Pretty big accusation there by Nikki Six, but again, the band changed their look for this album and their subsequent tour, trading the glam elements of the previous album for more of a biker aesthetic. The band faced many of the same personal issues that plagued the recording of Theater of Pain, and Six has complained that those issues compromised the album's quality. Although, as time has gone on, he has said more positive things about the record. On December 23, 1987, Six suffered another heroin overdose where he was declared clinically dead on the way to the hospital, but the paramedic, who was a crew fan, revived Six with two shots of adrenaline. His two minutes in death were the inspiration for the song Kickstart My Heart, which peaked at number 16 on the mainstream U.S. top chart and was featured on 1989's Dr. Feelgood, their first U.S. number one album. From 1986 to 1987, Six kept a daily diary of his heroin addiction and eventually entered rehab in 1988. Just what a story. (laughs) I mean, how do you, a man going through that sort of addiction and then just saying, ah, you know, I'm just going to make a song about it. You know, I'm just screw it. Well, I'm just going to write a song and make me feel better about it. But um, looking at the album Girls, Girls, Girls for Motley Crue, very successful album, like I'd said, you know, going all the way to number two on the debut charts, which is very unusual for any band. You know, it doesn't matter who you are. It's very, very impressive. And I will play for you right now Girls, Girls, Girls by Motley Crue, their title track.
The next album the band released was Dr. Feelgood on September 1st of 1989, where the band recorded the album in Vancouver, and band members recorded their parts separately for the first time to reduce infighting and to focus on their individual performances. Aerosmith lead singer Steven Tyler, who was recording the album Pump at the same studio, provided backing vocals on the album, which is something I never knew, and it is absolutely crazy to even think that. On October 14th of that same year, it became a number one album and stayed on the chart for 114 weeks after its release. This was a real peak popularity for the band. The band members each stated in interviews that due in no small part to their collective push for sobriety, Dr. Feelgood was their most solid album musically to that point. The title track and Kickstart My Heart were both nominated for Grammys in the Best Hard Rock category in 1990 and 1991, where it respectively lost both years to songs by A Living Color. The band did find some success at the American Music Awards, as Dr. Feelgood was nominated twice for Favorite Hard Rock Metal, losing once to Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction, but winning the following year, beating out Aerosmith's Pump and Poison's Flesh and Blood. Motley Crue was also nominated twice for Favorite Hard Rock and Metal Artist. In 1989, McGee was fired after the band alleged he had broken several promises that he made in relation to Moscow Music Peace Festival, including giving his other band, Bon Jovi, advantages in slot placement. Thaler then assured the role of the sole band manager. From that album, Dr. Feelgood, I'm going to play the title track, Dr. Feelgood, and Kickstart My Heart. Kickstart My Heart is probably the band's most well-known song, I I would assume, and it is really a rock and roll symphony you know it is just such a well-known song they really get into it mick mars on the guitar is really really good vince neal is actually you know he's an underrated singer i don't think people really think about him as a great singer more of just kind of a guy who's shouting and you really listen to it and if you're at a concert you don't really care how the dude sounds you're just trying to have a good time and that's really what it was like back in the 80s and the 90s when these guys were touring people didn't really care how vince neal sounded but i think this song is where he really was able to show off his talents, of his vocal talents, to be completely honest with you. But I'm going to play Dr. Feelgood, and then I'm going to play Kickstart My Heart by Motley Crue.
Motley Crue went through some definite issues. As in 1992, following their release on October 1st of 1991, their first compilation album, Decade of Decadence, 81 through 91, where it peaked at number two in the Billboard Top 200 album chart, which was released just for something for the band, or something for the fans, excuse me, while the band worked on the next all-new album. Vince Neil left the band in February of 1992, following the release of Decade of Decadence, during a period in which most other prominent glam metal bands of the 1980s were breaking up or otherwise seeing their popularity decline amid the advent of grunge and alternative music. It remains unclear whether Neil was fired or really quit the band. Six has long maintained that Neil quit, while Neil insists that he was fired. Any band has its little spats, Neil observed in 2000, and this one basically just stemmed from a bunch of FUs in a rehearsal studio and went from I quit to you're fired. It was handed it was handled idiotically. The management just let one of the biggest bands in the world break up. In the running for the vacant frontman position was Kick Tracy vocalist Steven Chereau. Ultimately, Neil was replaced by John Karobi, formerly of Angora and The Scream. Although Motley's self-titled March 1994 release made the Billboard Top 10, the album was a commercial failure. It also prompted negative reactions from many fans due to Neil's absence and its sound. Karabi suggested the band bring back Neil, believing the latter would always be seen as the voice of the band. This eventually resulted in his own firing in 1996. Karabi spoke about his time with the band and his thoughts on his first record with Motley Crue. Karabi said, My record was the first record that they had done that didn't go platinum, didn't make some sort of crazy noise, and everybody panicked. During his time away from the band, Neil realized a moderately su- released a moderately successful solo album, Exposed, in 1993, and a less commercially successful follow-up, Carved in Stone, in 1995. After Rolling Stone magazine broke the news in their November 26, 1996 issue, the band reunited with Neil in 1997 after their current manager, Alan Kovac, and Neil's manager, Bert Stein, set up a meeting between all the old band members where they agreed to leave their egos at the door, and the band released Generation Swine. Although it debuted at number four, and in spite of a live performance at the American Music Awards, the album was a commercial failure due to the part of lack of their support from the label. In 1998, Motley's contractual ties with Elektra had expired, putting the band in total control of their future, which included the ownership of their master recordings of all their albums. Announcing the end of their relationship with Elektra, the band became one of the few groups to own and control their publishing and music catalog. They were one of only a handful of artists to own the masters of their material and reportedly did so by being the biggest pain they could be until Elektra got fed up and handed over the rights in order to get the band off their label. After leaving Elektra, the band created their own label, Motley Records. Motley released their compilation Greatest Hits in late 1998, featuring two songs, Bitter Pill and Enslaved. In 1999, the band released all their albums dubbed as Crucial Crew. These limited edition digital remasters included demos, plus live, instrumental, and previously unreleased tracks. In 1999, the band also released Supersonic and Demonic Relics, an updated version of Decade of Decadence featuring the original songs from that album and and several previously unreleased B-sides and remixes, as well as their first official live album, Entertainment on Death, or Entertainment or Death, excuse me, which was the original working title for the studio album Theater of Pain. The band then went on to co-headlining a tour with the Scorpions. As in 1999, more tor- more turmoil for the band struck as Tommy Lee quit the band to pursue a solo career due to increasing tensions with Vince Neil, where he went on to say, all we got was a call from his attorney saying he was not coming back. 
he wasn't into rock and roll anymore. He even said that rock is dead. It all happened during a void in Motley. We weren't even rehearsing, so it was no big deal. Lee was then replaced by a longtime friend of the band, former Ozzy Osbourne drummer Randy Castillo, where the band released New Tattoo in July of 2000. Before the ensuing tour commenced, Castillo became ill with a duodenal ulcer. The band brought in former Hole drummer Samantha Maloney for the Maximum Rock Tour with Megadeth, as Castillo concentrated on his health. However, while Castillo was recovering from stomach surgery, he was diagnosed with squamous cell carcinoma after finding a tumor in his jaw. He died on March 26, 2002. Soon afterward, the band went on a short hiatus. While the band was on hiatus, Six played in Side Projects 58 and Brides of Destruction. Neil was featured on the first seasons of VHS 1's reality show, The Surreal Life, and had his own special titled Remarking, Remaking Vince Neil, which focused on his solo career and attempts to get into better physical shape. Mars, who suffers from a hereditary form of arthritis, which causes extensive spinal pain called ankylosing spondylitis, went into seclusion in 2001 dealing with health issues. Lee went on to form Methods of Mayhem and also performed as a solo artist during this time. A 2001 autobiography titled The Dirt, which the movie was subsequently made off of, co-authored by all four of the band members and Neil Strauss, presented Motley as the world's most notorious rock band. The book made the top 10 on the New York Times bestseller list and spent 10 weeks there, and would return to the list after the film adaptation was released in spring of 2019. In 2003, the band released two box sets entitled Music to Crash Your Car 2, Volume 1 and Volume 2, featuring the music from their entire career. The titles of the collections were heavily criticized by Hanoi rock singer Michael Monroe, among others due to their possible reference to Vince Neil and Razzle's fatal automobile accident, and that Neil was found guilty of manslaughter for that specific incident. A promoter in New England, Mags Revel, or Revel, excuse me, began clamoring for a Motley Crue reunion after the book was released and the band members kind of came together almost. You know, people really wanted them back together. After a meeting with management several times in September of 2004, Six announced that he and Neil had returned to the studio and began recording, recording new material. In December 2004, the four original members announced a reunion tour staging an announcement event in which they arrived at the Hollywood Palladium in a hearse. The tour began on February 14, 2005 in San Juan, Puerto Rico. The resulting compilation album Red, White, and Crew was released in February 2005 and features the band's members' favorite original songs plus three new tracks, If I Die Tomorrow, Sick Love Song, and which was co-written by Six and James Michael, and a cover of the Rolling Stones' classic Street Fighting Man. A small controversy was caused when it was suggested that neither Lee nor Mars played on the new tracks, which duties were supposedly handled by Vandal's drummer John Freese. However, a VH1 documentary of the band's reunion later showed that Lee did indeed play on some of the tracks. The Japanese release of Red, White, and Crew includes an extra to new track, which was titled I'm a Liar. Red, White, and Crew charted at number six and has since gone platinum. And off of that Red, White, and Crew, that new Motley Crew album, I will play for you right now, If I Die Tomorrow. See 
the band really went on to tour for many years later on where they performed for their last time at the Staples Center in Los Angeles on December 31st, 2015, where they reported that its New Year's Eve show was going to be released as a film in 2016, the movie titled The Motley Crew: The End. But, you know, as it goes on, they had the movie The Dirt released where it had some very, you know, popular actors. Machine Gun Kelly was portrayed as Tommy Lee. Pete Davidson was even in the movie. He was their record executive, Tom Zutat. It was really just an odd movie. As Rolling Stone wrote, The Dirt is a truly debauched movie that delves deep into their rise from their early 80s sunset strip metal scene to their days as arena headliners. You know, the, the film portrayed many of the adventures the band went on, including touring with Ozzy Osbourne in the Theater of Pain tour. You know, the movie, it, it really does not shy away from the issues that the band found themselves in. You know, it didn't shy away from the controversy that the band faced. It didn't shy away from the terrible drug and alcohol usage that the band used. And frankly, I, I hate to use that as an excuse, but every band did it. <laughs> Most bands went through those kind of situations so at that point it just kind of is what it is and you can't really hide that kind of stuff so the movie was very interesting but it, it portrayed the band very well i would say you know doing the research for this and, and looking at it motley crew is a very popular rock band and you listen to their music and you know it's classic rock and roll you just hear the guitar you know you hear the threads just going through like crazy Tommy Lee was great on the drums, Vince Neil was great on the vocals. Just a classic rock and roll band, which was Motley Crue, but that's going to be all the time that we have this evening here on Time Travel Rock, hosted by Jackson Reddick here on 90.3 KRNU. Hope you have a great rest of your Saturday night, and once again, I always appreciate you tuning in.